0: Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.
1: Hi, Anthony. Hey, Don. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm fired up today on this rainy, dreary Tuesday. (laughs) I want some sunshine. So speaking of sunshine, Anthony Hennon of the Center Square joins us and has been working overtime to shed some light on multiple issues. So I'll go right through the list and, and you can take us through it. Pennsylvania Eye's Veterans Home Advisory Board. What's going on with the Veterans Home Advisory Board, Anthony Hennon?
0: Yeah, so this is uh, interesting. When you look across the Commonwealth, there are about a half dozen homes uh, specifically for uh, veterans, and uh, each of them has an advisory board kind of overlooking what they're doing, um, various rules and concerns, that sort of thing. Uh, but there's a proposed Senate bill now looking to create a statewide one, um, and this would basically create a, a bit more oversight for the six homes. Um, they have about 1,300 Pennsylvania veterans living in them um, statewide. So this is an idea of bring, um a little more oversight here, and uh, this board would suggest improvements for services, care, treatment of residents. Um, it would also review the system's standards and practices. Um, evaluate evaluate its financial accountability standards, this sort of thing.
1: And is this, you know, I think of what happened in New Jersey where that scathing report recently came out and talked about the veterans' homes with regard to uh, what happened during COVID. So is any piece of this based on anything that went on in COVID or not?
0: Uh, Not exactly. Explicitly, or at least I don't think so. Um, I, at least as far as Pennsylvania is concerned, I, we haven't seen any, um, you know, bombshell reports, um, you know, noting neglect mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, the VA also evaluates these places, I believe, on an annual basis or on some regular basis, and those reports haven't really found anything scandalous. Um, this was proposed by um, Senator Doug Mastriano, and he was essentially arguing um our veterans homes should be a place where residents will receive the care and support necessary to live a safe active and healthy life um and th- this just seems like one one of those uh, um initiatives here trying to make make sure we're basically checking all the boxes make sure everything is um in line and trying to make sure that we're treating veterans well um but th- this does not seem at least in Pennsylvania um as something growing out of you know some major problem that was discovered and now people are responding to it thankfully
1: And, you know, this, it seems to me, well, first of all, I mean, we know uh, Senator Mastriano, combat uh, veteran, but it seems like it will get bipartisan support, no? I mean, it seems like it's pretty well supported across the Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, this this is an early bill. Um, It's working, again, it's uh, Senate Bill uh, 933, and it's working through the system. But it's it's first consideration in the uh, Veterans Affairs and Emergency Preparedness Committee um, last week. Um, It advanced with a unanimous vote. So it it does not seem like a terribly controversial one. Um, And I I think what does help is when they're looking at who will make up this council, um, this advisory board, the governor will appoint 10 of them, um, but you also have three of those appointees will be current residents of the veterans' homes Mm -hmm. or um, a family member of those. So we'll get a little more um, representation from people who have at least some level of direct experience with these homes.
1: And then another story that you wrote, Anthony Hannon, is talking about Food insecurity grants, because, you know, I think of right now with the economy the way it is, even I have a dog, I mean, just dog food, especially if you get canned dog food or the higher quality stuff. I mean, just, you know, right now there are stories of, for example, senior citizens living on a fixed income. So their utility rates are through the roof. They can't afford that. And and there are stories of, you know, I think of senior citizens who are maybe in the summer not running any AC units in the winter, they'll go without heat, but they're going to prioritize their cats and their dogs and feed feed mm-hmm. the animals before they feed themselves. I mean, because that, that's their company, and they're going through such tough times. So take me through what's going on in Pennsylvania to address these issues.
0: Yeah, so this, uh, again, from last week, um, Governor Shapiro announced that about $1.6 million will be um, issued out to uh, 40 bo- food banks across about 26 counties, I believe it was. Uh, Most of these grants are between $30,000 and $50,000. About half of those food banks would get a full $50,000. But this is is statewide. Um, I mean, this is Allegheny County, Montgomery County, Bradford County, Monroe County, um, really a spread um, across the Commonwealth here. Um, Basically, you know, making sure, you know, we've had issues with um, inflation driving up prices. Mm -hmm. We have um, still uh, higher numbers of Pennsylvanians who uh, don't always know where their next meal is coming from um, since the pandemic? Um, you know, 2019 it was about one point. Uh, let's see, one point three five million, and then uh, now it, it spikes up to about one point seven seven million during 2020. Um, then it's kind of fallen back down to about one point five million. So we're getting better at this, but there's still more people in Pennsylvania seem to be struggling with food prices. Um, so this comes on the heels of uh, previous grants have gone out where in uh, Shapiro's budget, he had designated another $2 million for emergency food assistance for low-income families. Um, this is also something that we've seen a lot of concern about in the General Assembly of trying to draw more, more attention to food insecurity and to helping food banks. Um, we've also seen a lot of action on the federal level, where the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced um, $25 million nationwide um, to help reduce food loss and waste and about 400,000 of that goes to Philadelphia, uh, basically connecting um, food banks and people with uh, grocery stores and wholesalers who have food that may be expiring soon or that they can't sell, um, making sure that food does not go to waste and gets to people who really need it.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times, I know you'll see it at grocery stores or, or restaurants, and one of the reasons that I know some of them just stopped dealing with that was that it's a liability issue. In other words, Mm -hmm. even, even, and then how do you transport it? So I've known people involved in different nonprofits and they would show up. They would, it it was kind of an off-books, don't ask, don't tell thing where they would go to various, even local grocers, local restaurants, and they would pick up the food and, and take it. But it was, it was, like I said, the best way for me to describe it is don't ask, don't tell because they didn't, Ultimately, they didn't want to get sued by anybody if, I don't know, something in the transmission of the food, somebody was accused of getting sick from the food, whatever, and they just felt like mm. it wasn't worth the headache or or they committed to giving it, but then how do you deliver it? And so that was another, yeah. you know, another issue.
0: Yeah, I think too there's kind of this uh big business small business divide. Yeah. I mean, in college I worked at Walmart and a lot of the food um Walmart would actually donate a decent bit to Feeding America, which is a large um nonprofit that works with food banks and other things. Um, you know, basically you get a punctured package where the cardboard itself is damaged but the food's not. Um we would see a decent number of a decent amount of that food getting donated, but I think with small businesses, it's just it's it's a lot of admin overhead, a lot of uh, you know, legal liabilities, so they seem not to worry as much about it. Um so it's good to see um at least some more effort being made to kind of deal with those transport issues, deal with those legal liability things and get more people fed.
1: And then another thing that you've written about, and it's, and earlier this morning, we had talked about the C40, some of the climate issues and climate change issues, um, especially by Mayor Jim Kenney. He's joined on to that. This one is the carbon capture potential and talking about tax credits. So take me through that. If, uh, you know, it's, I had some, speaking of Walmart, I was at Walmart over the weekend, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're writing about. But they were saying, oh, there are tax credits, and if you sign on to X energy company, um, they have more green energy. They were talking about the c- carbon capture utilization and the storage. So there, there's a lot of swirl going around about this. Take us through your angle, what you've been writing about, Anthony. Yes,
0: yeah, so I think there's two streams here. Um, one is the, uh, the carbon credits, which kind of help. Uh, you know, it's, it's a credit sold to offset carbon emissions. Um, and th- that's a big business with some uh, pros and cons of its own. But this this is more specifically uh, carbon capture. It's this idea that, I guess the simplest way to think of this is carbon captures the idea when you're producing energy or, you know, you're letting off carbon dioxide, these other emissions, and instead of letting it go into the atmosphere, it's captured in some capacity. Um, and essentially there, you can do two things with it. You can reuse it in some productive use. Um, we see this with um, like liquefied, um, carbon, which gets used in a number of different manufacturing processes, or you simply capture it and store it underground, um, generally um, in different um, uh, rock formations, or you can kind of build these different things out. Uh, but basically carbon capture and storage, there's been a lot of talk about this in recent mm-hmm. years, um, especially because there's a lot of federal tax credits and money coming in to support this basically as a way of reducing emissions without kind of hurting the uh, grid re- reliability and power production. Um, so the idea here is to essentially take this take this carbon dioxide capture, it, either re- reuse it or bury it somewhere um, underground. Uh, and th- this is, this is it's a bit complicated simply because we don't have a lot of good use cases just yet. Uh, I mean, we've had for decades in some capacity carbon has been recaptured and stored underground. Um, but as far as a large scale thing, we don't yet have that. But the uh, Department of uh, Conservation and Natural Resources um, held an online webinar kind of discussing the future possibilities of this and the potential promises of it. Um, and Pennsylvania, of course, has, it's, it's a huge um, uh, power-producing uh, yes. state and exporting it, using it for right. our own. Um, and so th- there's some hope here that there's basically a way to square the circle of being able to keep, keep these jobs, keep this um, economic boost, uh, without having to damage it without and actually lowering emission reductions. Uh, so that's generally what they're talking about here. Um, we, there was uh, Perry Babb, who's with Key State Energy. He's proposing a $2 billion hydrogen project in Clinton County, which basically would use carbon capture technology um, as a way to produce uh, hydrogen and some other things in there, basically using some trapped um, natural gas up there that's not connected in with any other pipelines. So that's one use. Um, another use has been essentially to make uh, coal plants actually carbon neutral of essentially using carbon capture technology to then store the emissions from the coal comp- from the coal plant underground so you're not actually um, uh, emitting any carbon dioxide with that coal. Uh, but this also there's some problems here simply because we don't have a large scale mm-hmm. example of this really working. Um the federal government since two thousand and nine has poured more than $1 billion into um, these projects, generally associated with coal plants as a way to store this carbon underground, to make this emission neutral. Um, It hasn't panned out. Uh, Basically, only one of those projects really made it out into the works, and then it quickly closed because of economic pressures. Um, So we spent a lot of money on this technology, but we don't yet have a really good example of carbon capture working
1: yeah I saw just a few days ago there was a um doe announcement and they were naming a steel, a Pennsylvania steel maker at the Edgar Thompson plant here in Pennsylvania. and they were announcing this you know special membrane and at first I thought, oh, it's like a filter because my attitude is why why not just filter it instead of mm-hmm. capturing it? so I'm not I don't really fully understand how, but I guess I mean this is what they're testing. So it's like a a test pilot project, but it's an advanced membrane technology that captures the carbon dioxide emissions. I, to me, I don't know if that means they sl- they just capture all of it. They can, haven't found a way to filter it, but I think that's one example of tr- you know they're trying this. But they and they're going to start it by 2025. But they actually I, they actually don't know. For and I'll give you an example: Legos which, you know, my kids, Legos, oh, I still have them all over the house in the basement. So Legos, big, biggest toy maker in the world, they decided, they're in Denmark, hey, we're going to make things out of recycled plastic to reduce carbon emissions. So they did this. They spent over a billion dollars on technology to try to create this and use Legos from recycled plastic. Sounds like a great idea. Well, not only did it not work, but it also did not in any way reduce carbon emissions. So, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that, to your point, Anthony, sometimes they do these, it costs a fortune. I guess, <sighs> you know, part of me, I hesitate to say it, but sometimes it's like money laundering. I mean, honest to goodness, we're, so the federal government gives all this money, a ton of more money than we can even, you know, fathom, and and then these are all failed project projects. So, who gets greased in between? I Sometimes I just, I don't know the answer. It just feels like... It feels as if wow this is a whole lot of our tax dollars for something that may or may not work and they and they're spending years on it.
0: Yeah, I would it's a, it's a, it's a very risky thing I think to use public money with simply because, you know, it's it's not panning out. Um a lot of this is experimental. Um it's also interesting simply because you you kind of have some weird bedfellows in some of this Um, (laughs) some manufacturers are very supportive of this some of them are not Mm -hmm. Um, some environmentalists are coming out against this very strongly either from a this doesn't work side or a uh, this is only going to increase emissions in in the long run and you know there is this tension of how much pollution is too much pollution what are the public health effects here but you also have some environmentalists arguing that in certain cases this could be promising simply because there are no alternatives With this industry to you know go from fossil fuels to renewable electricity or something like that. Um, But I I think the fundamental point here is we're seeing a lot of um, you know state tax credits, federal money rolling in to see if carbon capture can pan out and can work. Um, But a lot of this, you know, this is far from proven, and there's a lot of unknowns here that uh, you know I, I think the public needs to be paying attention to this and simply be aware of the scale in which how much of this money is going to fund it.
1: Um, my final question is about your article about addiction recovery services and how they are evolving. We've talked a lot about this, and this the opioid epidemic, it doesn't make the headlines, in my humble opinion, that it should, and this even goes back to those individuals who became addicted because they were prescribed medications that we now know should never have been approved for pain management and and so to me it's a lot of there's a lot of tragic news and I'm in Philadelphia we have Kensington right here but take me through this because you're talking about an important issue not just in Pennsylvania but in the entire country yeah so
0: I mean there, there's there been a lot of um, coverage I, I guess in the last few weeks and yeah. because there, there's a lot of events going on for national recovery months and, and things like this and um, But basically, I mean, when you look at what the Commonwealth has done in in recent years from making sure that Narcan is much more publicly available, giving it to first responders, making sure anyone uh, in the general public can get a hold of it to use it in case they find someone going through an overdose. Um, We've seen the legalization of fentanyl and xylazine test strips so people can test um, drugs to see what's actually in it. Um, we've seen a lot of money going into uh, recovery services and going into the single-county authorities or these county-level ju- drug commissions to help people. Um, we've seen warm handoff programs, which basically connects um, people working in the recovery sphere with people either recently um, leaving a county jail, people um, exiting a hospital, basically trying to connect them with resources and get them help um, so I, I mean, I think it's been promising, but just the, the scale of what's going on here, because, again, uh, I mean, more than 5,000 Pennsylvania residents died last year from an overdose. Um, Pennsylvania is one of the hardest hit states yeah. in all of the U.S. Um, as we've seen, which is a uh, an animal tranquilizer grow in the drugs uh, scene, Pennsylvania is basically the epicenter of that, especially yeah. Philadelphia. I mean, it's not heroin anymore. Basically, anything you find on the street now is just fentanyl or it's fentanyl and xylazine. Um, so we've kind of been seeing more of a shift of not only giving out, um, Naloxone and making sure people can help, um, reverse an overdose if they find one, um, to also kind of expanding, you know, how can we help people in recovery? How can we give them hope or a sense of purpose long term for their lives? Yeah. Um, so a lot of, a lot of counties now you're seeing these recovery centers popping up, which are kind of like community centers where they may be offering, um, Services from, you know, come in, you can take a shower here, you can uh, do laundry, you know, basic, having these basic um, daily services to also, you know, holding, holding meetings or um, having, hosting programs, but also just connecting people. Make sure that people have other people around them, um, you know, basically who are better influenced in their lives, who can give them a sense of purpose, who can give them that sense of community that really helps people get out of bed in the morning. Um, So I I think especially with all this opioid money coming in, um, when you look on the county level, I think you'll see more money going toward those sorts of um, services, those sort of uh, connected programs.
1: Well, Anthony Hennon, I know that you're busy and you write all about so many issues, all of which center around Pennsylvania, what's going on. So thank you so much for taking out this chunk of time to explain to us all these important issues that are beyond the headlines. Anthony, thank you so much.
0: Thank you.